You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we gather now around your word, and it is our heart's desire to be instructed in the truth of your, of your word. We thank you that you have revealed things to us which, with our own natural senses, we would never be able to discern or to know. And so we gladly bow the knee before you and pray that you would send your spirit to be our guide and instructor in the truth. And may your word be our rule and our guide, we pray, both now and forever. Bless this time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Psalm 73 because we started that psalm at the last week and uh, doing this in two halves. So we're going to read the first half and I will remind you of uh, this will help remind you of what it is that we covered last week. This psalm deals with the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, this people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's what we covered last week, those first 14 verses that show us that the prosperity of the wicked is something that perplexes the righteous. And just by way of reminder, just to set it up so that we we understand the context and what Asaph is struggling through, in those first 14 verses, we saw that Asaph uh, noted three things. First, that there is a truth that the righteous know. In verse 1, that God is good to those who trust Him. That God is good to His people. That God is good to those who belong to Him. To those who are pure in heart. And second, there is a treasure then that the righteous observe. And that treasure is described in verses 2 through verse 12. The treasure being the treasury or the abundance of the blessings that the wicked enjoy. And then Asaph lists them. You remember them. They live at ease. They die at ease. They live in comfort and they die in comfort. They're not in trouble like other men. They don't have all of the things that plague the most of mankind. They don't deal with all the things that the righteous deal with. They don't seem to suffer. They're not afflicted. They have wealth. They have abundance. They have comforts and conveniences. And it goes easy with them. And there are no pains in their death. They don't suffer and waste away and die. It seems like they're taken in a moment and they're just offered, uh, 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 whisked off uh, effortlessly into eternity. Those are all the things that the wicked seem to enjoy. And then there is this, after the truth that the righteous know and the treasury that the righteous observe, there is a temptation into which the righteous can fall. In verses 13 and 14, that temptation being to think that it is in vain that we have kept our hearts pure. It is in vain that I have begun to serve Christ and to worship Him and to love God and to honor Him. And then the wicked don't do that. And the wicked get all of this. And I go through that. 
And what do I get? I get chastening. I get reproof. I get the discipline of the Lord. I don't seem to enjoy all of the things that the wicked get, so they in their wickedness enjoy all of this, but I don't get any of that. Instead, I get what I get is affliction. My reward seems to be the coin of affliction. That's how the Lord repays the righteous. And so Asaph says, I began to reason in my heart that it is in vain that I have kept my hands pure. It is in vain that I have purified my own heart and that I have followed Christ. And that is what started to cause Asaph's feet to slip or to stumble. In verse 2, and he says, my feet had almost slipped. Uh, my, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps had almost slipped. When you hear yourself saying this, it is in vain that I have served God. When that begins, the, be, begins to be the contemplation of your heart and your mind, listen carefully, that is the sound of your feet slipping. And your heart will, your heart has already gone there and your feet are beginning to slip. Now this prosperity of the wicked is something that I think, judging from the response that many of you gave me last week, I think that that is something that the righteous have observed and the righteous have been perplexed in on more than one occasion, uh, in more than one way. It seems that probably everybody in this room can think of times when you have looked at how somebody seems to get rewarded for their wickedness and the righteous seem to suffer affliction and it seems that the more godly they are, the worse things happen to them. Right? They pursue the Lord and all of this happens and yet the wicked get all of this. Well, that's the dilemma. That's how the, the, the righteous or the prosperity of the wicked perplexes the righteous. Now the answer to this is in the second half of the psalm. So now the psalm begins to change entirely. That sets it up. Now we'll read together verses 15 to 28 and then I'll tell you what the outline for the second half of the psalm is. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of, the, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Now, the sentiment or the sense of the second half of the psalm is entirely different from the first half. In the first half, we see that the in the first half we see that the prosperity of the wicked perplexes the righteous. But in the second half, we see that when the righteous get God's perspective on the prosperity of the wicked, we realize that that prosperity is short-lived and it is illusory. It is deceptive. It does not last long, and it is deceptive. So that's what that's our outline for today. The, this, this is the main idea of the psalm. If you were to take the entire psalm and boil it down into one sentence, that would be it. The prosperity of the wicked perplexes the righteous, but getting God's perspective reveals that that prosperity is merely temporary, it is short-lived, and it is illusory, it is very deceptive. So Asaph got a different perspective, beginning in verse 15. Asaph gets a different perspective on the prosperity of the righteous. And this changes everything for him. Now he views everything differently. He views God differently. He views their situation differently. He views their riches differently. He views himself differently. And so the second half of the psalm is entirely different than the first. So getting God's perspective on uh, 
two different things in the second half of the psalm. First, the prosperity of the wicked in verses 15 through uh, 19. 19? 20. Somewhere in there we'll stop. And the second thing, he gets a different perspective on the portion of the righteous. So Asaph begins by describing actually again, but now from a different perspective, the prosperity of the wicked. And then he focuses in what it is that the righteous really do enjoy. So the first half of the psalm really deals with looking at the wicked and their prosperity from the human vantage point. It's all horizontal. The second half of the psalm, Asaph gets an entirely different perspective and sees the wicked and their blessings and prosperity from God's vantage point. The second half of the psalm is God's vantage point. So first, he gets a different perspective on the prosperity of the wicked, beginning in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, Asaph, when he gets to the end of verse 14, he has said, I began to reason in my heart that it is vain to serve God. It it is in vain that I have kept my hands pure. It is in vain that I have purified my heart and washed my hands in innocence. All of that has been for nothing. Those were the sentiments going on in Asaph's mind. But he very quickly realized that he could never say that to anybody because to say that out loud would be to betray the generation of God's children. Asaph knew that what he was thinking in his heart was not right. He knew, verse 1, that God is good to those who are His and that the Lord is good to those who are pure of heart. Asaph knew God is good, but yet now he's coming to a conclusion. He looks at the wicked, he sees their blessings, he looks at the lot of the righteous, and this doesn't seem to add up. So he begins in his mind and his heart to conclude maybe it is in vain that the children of God serve God. Maybe it is in vain that we have kept our hearts pure. But then no sooner does that sentiment come to Asaph's mind than he realizes that stinks. That thought cannot be long tolerated in the, the, the nose of a righteous man. There's something about that that he immediately realizes this is not good. And so Asaph keeps his mouth shut. Wisely, Asaph does not say a thing about it because he knows it would betray, it would to be, it would be to betray the generation of God's children. Imagine what would happen if a worship leader in the nation of Israel had come out and said, you know what, I'm starting to question whether or not God is really good to those who are His. The damage that is done when a spiritual leader begins to express his doubts is exponentially greater than when the damage is done by some rank individual in the nation of Israel. And Asaph knew, I'm a musician. I lead the worship in the tabernacle of God. And if I begin to express to other people what I have started to think, this would cause great infection in their own spiritual lives. It would be to probably put a stumbling block in front of many who are weak in faith and a stumbling block uh, that would be irretrievable. People would stumble over that and be irretrievable. It, it does tremendous damage when spiritual leaders speak things that are wrong and things that are that are wicked. And Asaph realizes that, and so he is silent. Wisely, he is silent. He keeps his mouth shut because he knows that if I say anything, it would be to infect others with that poisonous thinking. That's what he calls later on foolishness. Matthew Henry, describing this passage, says, though he thought amiss, he took care not to utter it, Utter that evil though through which he had conceived. It is bad to think ill, but it is worse to speak it, for that is giving the evil thought a sanction. And it is allowing it and giving consent to it and publishing it for the infection of others. Asaph knew, this is the poison that is in my mind. And if I say this, it's going to betray others. It might cause others to stumbling. And so he kept quiet about it. But that only increased his agony. Look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He's thinking about the prosperity of the wicked and he is in great angst over this. This vexed him. For how long? We do not know. But we know that while his mind was coming to wrong conclusions, Asaph 
did not allow that to cross his lips. He did not allow that to pollute anybody else because he knew it was wrong and he would never say it. He would never publish it. He was silent about it. But that caused great turmoil. Look at the verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. This, this is great spiritual anxiety that he is going through. And you know what? Part of that spiritual anxiety was caused by the fact that he couldn't say anything to anybody else about this. He knew he had to be silent. It was not just the conclusions that he was starting to come to, but it was the reality that he had to keep those conclusions to himself. And so it was just like a festering sore inside of his spirit. And he knew he could not express this to others. He knew he had to keep it to himself. But in keeping it to himself, it just poisoned him. Charles Spurgeon, in describing this, says, The thought of scandalizing the family of God he could not bear, and yet his inward thoughts seethed and fermented and caused an intolerable anguish within. To speak might have relieved one sorrow, but as it would have created another, he forebore so dangerous a remedy. Yet this did not remove the first things, which grew even worse and worse, and threatened utterly to overwhelm him. And then Spurgeon says this, and these are are wise words. A smothered grief is hard to endure. The triumph of conscience which compels us to keep the wolf hidden beneath our own garments does not forbid its gnawing at our vitals. Suppressed fire in the bones rages more fiercely than if it could gain a vent at the mouth. Those are good words. What is Spurgeon saying? He realized that the conclusion he had come to was like a wolf. And if he set that free amongst the people of God, it would wreak much havoc. So he kept it concealed beneath his garments, but it just gnawed at him on the inside. That's the type of anguish that Asaph was going through. All of that was happening until, until, verse 7, he came into the, 17, he came into the sanctuary of God. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. Now, when he says sanctuary, do not think in your minds that he is talking about some room someplace with a good sound system and and nice lighting, something better than this where the people of God worship. That's not what he's describing. In fact, I think it would be wrong to even ask the question, where or what was this sanctuary? Because I do not believe that what Asaph is describing here is a particular place, but a particular perspective. The word sanctuary just simply means holy place. This was going on inside of me until I came into the holy place. I don't think he means temple. I don't think he means a particular room inside the temple. I believe, I think that what Asaph is, he's being intentionally nonspecific. Until I came into the place of God's dwelling, from God's perspective, and saw this from, from God's vantage point. That's what he's describing. Now maybe the holy place for him, this, this sanctuary for him, was prayer. Maybe it was in prayer that Asaph wrestled through this and thought through this. And in the, in the midst of prayer as a prophet of God and as a musician of God, he came to this conclusion and he got a different perspective. Maybe the sanctuary was not prayer. Maybe it was meditation. Sitting back with a, a scroll unfolded in front of him and he begins to think upon the nature of God and the nature of God's revelation, the nature of God's justice, the nature of God's mercy and eternity. Maybe it is there that he entered into that holy place. Or maybe the holy place is, is, is merely the fellowship and the worship that happened corporately or privately with other Christians. In some way, in some place, through some means, Asaph came into the place where God was. And this is his way of saying, I was anxious over this until I was removed from the perspective of seeing it merely from man's vantage point and seeing it instead from God's vantage point. I came into the sanctuary of God. Then Asaph says, that is when I perceived. I saw their end. And it is that perception now that makes all of the difference for the rest of the psalm. Now Asaph realizes three things. First, that their footing is slippery. Verse 19. How? Verse 18, sorry. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. When Asaph saw the wicked, from God's perspective, he realized the position of power and preeminence and prosperity that they enjoyed. It was not 
They were not sure-footed there. They were put actually in slippery places. And when Asaph says you, he's referring to God. God had put them there. Now, this is sometimes the most difficult thing for us to deal with, is that sometimes God does take the wicked and put them in positions of power. Are you shocked? Sometimes God does take the wicked and put them into positions of prosperity. It is God's hand that does that. He raises up kings and He puts down kings. It is the hand of God that does that. None of the wicked people that Asaph has in mind who were enjoying and basking in their prosperity, none of them had gotten there by mere chance. In fact, it is, it is that recognition that God is the one who has done this on behalf and to the wicked. It is that recognition which causes the perplexity. I mean, think about it. If Asaph had believed that the wicked received their prosperity merely by chance, there would have been no perplexity over this, would it? Asaph would have said, hey, that's how the cookie crumbles. I mean, some people get it, some people doesn't. It's a lottery, you roll the dice, you move your mice, that's how it works out. It's all a game of chance and circumstance. There would have been no perplexity. Asaph would have just simply said, hey, sometimes it happens that way, sometimes it happens the other way. What caused him such great angst, what caused him to begin to think maybe God is not good to his people, is that he knew it's God who has given those wicked men that prosperity and that blessing. And what solves the dilemma for Asaph is not coming suddenly to the conclusion that God didn't do it after all. In other words, Asaph doesn't say, you know, I thought God had done this. But as it turns out, I was wrong. God didn't do this at all. This was Satan's doing. Or this was their doing. God's not responsible for that. Asaph doesn't come to that conclusion because he knows that nobody gets rich. Nobody receives a dime if it is not the will of God. If God does not do it. He is the giver of everything. He is the one who has done this for the wicked on behalf of the wicked. There must be something else going on. The other thing that does not resolve that does not resolve Asaph's dilemma is Asaph doesn't suddenly say, you know what, their riches are really not riches. He doesn't say, I kind of overstated the case. Maybe it wasn't really prosperity is another way of looking at it. No, no, it is the fact that God has done it and the fact that they are in fact prospering in their wickedness. This is what causes the dilemma. But here is what Asaph did not realize. What Asaph did not realize was that God had not put these men in these positions of prominence and eminence and prosperity to bless them for their wickedness, but to prepare them for their judgment. That is the different perspective. This was not a blessing. This was not a reward for their wickedness that God was doing. God was in fact preparing these wicked men for their judgment by elevating them to these positions of power and preeminence and authority, and prosperity, and riches, and comfort. This was, in fact, God's doing, but it was not a secure position. It was not a blessed position. It's a slippery place. It's a slippery place. This is uncertain. And in any moment, this could change. And why would God Himself elevate these men to this position of preeminence and prosperity? What is God doing in it? Verse 18, You cast them down to destruction. The reason God has elevated them is for what? so that He might drop them and destroy them. The blessing of prosperity upon the wicked is not because God is rewarding them for their wickedness, but because God is ripening them for their punishment. Now you say, that sounds harsh and unfair and unloving. Keep in mind, God is free to judge His creatures however He determines it is best to judge His creatures. That is His prerogative. He is right. His ways are right. His ways are truthful and and just. God can do this in whatever means He wants to. You and I can make no objection and say, well, it's not right for Him to lift people up to punish them. We're not talking about innocent people who are suddenly just tripping through life and find themselves blessed with prosperity. And God says, hey, here's an innocent person. I think I'll destroy him by lifting him up and dropping him real hard. 
No, these are wicked people who in their wickedness have advanced. And, and it seems that the more they prosper in their wickedness, the more they prosper financially. Have you ever noticed that? Somebody starts out and they do a wicked deed and they're blessed for it. And they do more wickedness and they're blessed for it. And with every act of wickedness, it just keeps going up and up the scale till they get up to these, 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 these eminent positions. And you say, well, how is it that they can get there if they're being, how is it that they can be blessed like that for all of the wickedness that they have done to get there? It's not the blessing of God. The prosperity that He has given to them is not a blessing. It is a judgment. Prosperity can be a judgment. And in this situation, it is. In their wickedness, God had lifted them up and every act of wickedness brings them up higher. Because we have a proverb in our own day that says the bigger they are, the what? The harder they fall, right? Does that mean that physically big? It's not talking about physically big. The higher up they are lifted. The more preeminent, the more they have, when they lose it, the more they lose, right? Think of what Judgment Day is going to be for the person who has the most of this world's goods. It is going to be a tremendous loss. More than your average pagan, run-of-the-mill pagan who's judged who has only a small fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what that wicked person had. But the more they have, the more they are lifted up, and the purpose is not to bless them. This is not a reward. This is what Asaph came to understand. God has put them up there, and it's a slippery place. Down they go, and they fall, and they fall hard. Spurgeon said it this way, they were not elevated, they were but elevated by judicial arrangement for the fuller execution of their doom. If the wicked had not been raised so high, they could not have fallen so low. Now, are you and I supposed to delight in this? Oh, yippee. God is going to judge them. No, no. The, the point is this. These men should not be the objects of our envy. These men should be the objects of our pity. We look at their wickedness and we realize the point that God, the reason God has brought them up that high is so that He might destroy them justly for their wickedness. Their prosperity is not a reward for their wicked behavior. Their prosperity is merely ripening them for the just judgment of God. That was what, that was the perspective that Asaph got. They, their footing is in slippery places. And when that judgment happens, it happens swiftly. Look at verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. When the, when the wicked die, like that, they lose everything. For the righteous individual, death is the loss of nothing and the gain of everything. But for the wicked, death is the loss of everything and the gain of absolutely nothing. It is the polar opposite. And so the higher up God lifts somebody in their prosperity as an act of His judgment, the harder and the farther they fall, and then their judgment and their destruction is even more severe because of what they had enjoyed in this life. All of the, all of the blessings and all of the prosperity was not something that was turned by God into their good or into their blessing, but actually into a curse upon them and into their judgment. And so when their, when their judgment comes, their destruction is sudden. That's what verse 19 is, how, how they are destroyed in a moment. Suddenly, swiftly, they lose it all. Now from one perspective, we look at them and say, look how they just pass away into eternity with how hardly a, Hardly a care, with hardly a worry, and hardly any suffering. But if you could pass into their eternity, you would realize that the first moment of their eternity is not like the last moment of their life. It's not easy and comfortable at all. The first moment of their eternity and every consecutive moment is nothing but the wrath of God. For they have lost everything, and great has been their fall. And God is just, and He is able to do this. He is able to raise up Pharaoh so that He might demonstrate His name in Pharaoh. God is able to harden whom He wills and soften whom He wills. This is the sovereign hand of God, and one of the ways that God judges wicked men is by giving them this world's riches. Not only is their footing slippery and their destruction sudden, but their damnation is certain. Verse 20, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. The the wicked looked at the, the delay in God's justice and thought that a delay in God's justice meant a stay in God's justice. 
And what they didn't realize was that this delay in God's justice was nothing more than almost like God's slumbering or sleeping for a bit. And Asaph is not thinking that God is actually sleeping. It's an analogy or a word picture, a figure of speech that just simply means from the perspective of the human vantage point, God's justice seems to be slumbering. But how long does a dream last? A few seconds? It's very brief compared to the rest of the night or compared to the rest of the day even. A dream is just, it's, it's but illusory and it's just for a moment. And so it is when the justice of God awakes, when the judgment of God awakes from that dream, as brief as it is and as fleeting as it is, that most certainly they, their judgment will be executed. So the wicked who back in verse 11 said, does, there, does God know? Is there any knowledge with the Most High? Certainly what I have done, I have gotten away with. And, and God has been silent and quiet. And He has not seen this. And He has not uh, given me retribution for this. And so they think they get away with it. But now Asaph realizes they're not getting away with it. This is just like a dream. It's just a temporary sleep. And when the justice of God awakes, He will despise their form. And that kind of brings back to mind the, the wording of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where Daniel says that some will be resurrected to everlasting glory and some to everlasting contempt. God will not look with pity upon those who are in hell for all of eternity. He will look upon them in justice. And the Scriptures say He will hold them in contempt and He will despise their form. Those who have spent their life despising God will spend their eternity being despised by God for their sin. Because this is the just judgment of God for all of their wicked deeds which they have done. That doesn't bring us delight. It doesn't bring us delight. We ought to delight in some way, in some measure, in some, in some ways in the justice of God, that God is just and that these acts of wickedness will not be overlooked. But we don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is a wrong thing to do. But we should take pleasure in the vindication of God's name and God's justice. And we can delight in the fact that God will make sure that every wrong is righted. So that is Asaph's new perspective now. He realizes that they will be swept away and be swept away quickly. Now let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, do you envy them now? Modern day Asaph who are sitting here, do you envy the wicked still? When you see their end? Do you envy the ox in his stall knowing that he's being fattened for the slaughter? Does that make you envy the ox? You say, well, he sits around his stall all day long. He doesn't have to work. He doesn't bear the burden of the field like the other oxen. And he eats the choicest of grain and the best of the oats. And people clean up after him and they water him. What a life! Until you realize that the ox is merely being ripened for the slaughter. He's been fattened up. Then do you envy him? Or do you pity the ox? It's the same thing with the wicked. We ought not look at the wicked who have prospered in their wickedness and think, oh, this is the reward for what they get. It would be better for me to be wicked and get what they got. No, 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 no. Suddenly we realize this is not a reward for their wickedness. This is a ripening for their punishment. God is doing this because God is just. And He is making sure that those who have been exceedingly wicked get exceedingly exalted so that their judgment might be exceedingly just. Let me ask you a second question. Does this tell you something about the value of prosperity in this world? Tell you something about the value of prosperity and riches in this world. Listen, do you think that if earthly riches and earthly wealth were so important and so valuable that God would lavish so much of it upon those who have the least of His love? Do you think that God would do that? The fact that God gives that type of stuff to His enemies should tell us what the value of that stuff really is. It's not eternal. It is fleeting. It is for this world. It, it is. It is not valuable. There are other things that are valuable that are poured out upon those on whom God has set His eternal saving affection. But the fact that He gives those things to His avowed enemies, those who are hostile to Him and hate Him the most, is an evidence of what those things are, are truly worth. Don't envy them. Don't, don't envy the people that God despises. This position of prosperity, this, this position of wealth and preeminence is not something that God gives to His friends. It is something that God has given to His foes. Now, 
Having said all of that, before we move on to the next half, let's answer this question. Is it true then that God never blesses with material blessings the righteous? No, that's not true. God does give material blessings to the righteous. We, we acknowledge that. Look, compared to two-thirds of the world's population, we are incredibly material blessed. In reality, we are. Now, we can compare ourselves to the wicked in our own nation who have advanced beyond imagination and say, well, we're not blessed like them, but that's not the point. We really, truly have been blessed. So we enjoy these things that God gives it to us. But the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. The Proverbs say. So God blesses the righteous. He does. But when God pours out prosperity upon the righteous, it is for their benefit and for their blessing, not for their judgment. And then the righteous have the responsibility to take what God has given to them and to distribute it to others and use it for the advancement of His kingdom. There are reasons why God does pour out His blessings upon the righteous. And that does happen. But we also recognize that it is really in our world, it's not the righteous that prosper as much as the wicked, right? But in the case of the wicked, God is not pouring out those blessings upon them to bless them for their iniquity. God is pouring out those blessings upon them to punish them for their sin. It's, it's in some ways the same thing, but for two entirely different ends, depending on what the intention of God is in giving those things to those people. All right, the second thing that Asaph had a change of perspective is not only the prosperity of the wicked, but also the portion of the righteous, beginning in verse 15. Sorry, the portion of the righteous, beginning in verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant and I was like a beast before you. Now, in the second half of, of this passage we're looking at, verse 21 to the end, in, in that section, you're going to hear words of confession and repentance by Asaph. And, and something to note about the second half of this psalm, and this is different than the first half, and maybe you already noticed this. In the second half of this psalm, there is more emphasis given to the portion of the righteous, really, than, than the prosperity of the wicked. In the first half of the psalm, there were two verses, two verses about the righteous. And they were really a complaint about what the righteous endure. I'm chastened all day long. I wake up and I'm disciplined by God. I'm vexed. So the two verses about the, the righteous really lamented the righteous's condition. But then there were ten verses in the first half of the psalm about the prosperity of the wicked. and went on and on about all these things that the wicked enjoy. The second half, it is the, it, it's reversed. There are only three verses describing the wicked, and they're about their destruction. And then there are ten verses describing the righteous and what the righteous enjoy. So you see how the perspective has changed? Suddenly Asaph begins to look heavenward, and he sees the true blessing, the true portion that comes not to those who are wicked, but to those who are righteous. And so there are three things here worth noting. First, that the grace of God we enjoy, the righteous enjoy the grace of God in forgiveness. Verses 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, he is then again describing this emotional and spiritual anguish that he went through in suffering through this dilemma of what do I do with the prosperity of the righteous? Or with the wicked, sorry. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Those are words of confession. I was an idiot. This is what I was thinking, and I was an idiot. I was a fool. I was ignorant. I was like a beast. What does he mean, I was like a beast? What does that phrase mean? Do, do beasts think about the future? Now, you think, that, you think that the horse and the chicken walk out to the corner of the meadow and sit by the field and plan what they're going to do next week? Do you think they do that? Do you think the ox sits in the stall and thinks about anything that's going to happen next week or next month? Do they make plans? No, they don't. Do they see anything in their life from the vantage point of what this might do later on? Now, have you ever given a, a dog, a gluttonous dog, the opportunity to eat as much as it wants whenever it wants? It will eat itself to the point of sickness, not even thinking about what this is going to do to us. We are the ones who think 
if I do this now, how will this work out for me in a couple of, of months? How will this work out for me in a couple of years or maybe in eternity? It is humans who think in terms of the future. Animals don't. So when Asaph says, I was like a beast before you, he is saying, I was thinking like an animal, like an ox, only seeing this life from this moment. At this moment I look out and I see that the, the wicked prosper and the righteous don't. And I evaluated everything in terms of this moment, right now, and right now, and right now, never thinking of the future. It is only when he entered the sanctuary of God that he began to see their end. That is, he was able to look forward. Beasts don't think about the future. They don't evaluate things in terms of time. Humans do. And when Asaph was complaining about the wicked, he was saying, I was like a fool, I was like a beast, I was only evaluating things in terms of this moment. The other way that beasts think, not that I've ever been an animal, but I would perceive this to be the case, the only way that animals think is in relation to their, their senses, what they smell, what they see, what they taste. And that is another a way of describing Asaph's perspective. It was only what he saw looking out at it. He evaluated everything in terms of what his eyes took in. He saw the wicked. He saw their prosperity. He envied it. He evaluated everything in terms of what he was able to see, not from what he was able to perceive from the sanctuary of God. It was after he got God's perspective that suddenly he saw everything else, not only from time, but also from eternity. So I was, I was ignorant. I was a fool. And by the way, this is the, this is the response of the righteous when the righteous realize that everything that they have thought and everything that they have done is sin. You and I should have no problem looking at something that we once thought or did and saying, you know what? Here's what it was. And it was idiotic. I was a fool. I was like a beast. I was, I did this in ignorance and it is sin. We ought to be the first ones to take our sins and put them in the stocks publicly and cast dispersions on them. And that's what Asaph is doing. He wants us to learn from this. And he is saying, this is how I thought. And it was idiotic. Therefore what? Don't think this way. Because this is foolishness. This is beastly thinking. I was in error. I was a fool. And so don't follow me in this. Now second, verse 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand and with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Not only is the the grace of God sufficient for forgiveness, but the guidance of God to glory. That's what those two verses describe. Asaph is saying, this was my... This is the way I was thinking. But in the midst of all of this, verse 23, I am continually with God. So even in the midst of his foolish thinking, where was God? Continually with Asaph. In fact, he was with Asaph, guiding and taking hold of him by his right hand, verse 23. And with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph is looking at the course of his thinking and realizing that even in the midst of all of this struggle that I have endured, God is the one who grabbed me by my right hand and, and guided me through this so that I would not come to the wrong conclusion and that I would not fall away. God was in fact the one who was his guide and comfort and God is in fact the one who had revealed to Asaph what the true end of the wicked was. Why is it that Asaph sought, suddenly understood truth? It's not because of Asaph's reasoning. It wasn't due to Asaph's intellect. It wasn't Asaph's uh, superior discerning qualities or abilities. None of that. It was Asaph came to understand the truth the same reason, the same way that you and I come to understand the truth. It is because God is the one who reveals it. And that's what Asaph is saying. In the midst of all of this, God was the one who grabbed me by my right hand. He took me and he was my guide and my counselor. He kept my feet from stumbling. He kept my steps from slipping. And he guided me all the way through this. And he brought me to the place of understanding this. And God will not only preserve me through all of this perplexity that I've gone through, but he will preserve me and take me all the way to glory. That is the security of the righteous and the security of the sheep. Asaph knew his feet would not stumble over this. 
Though it was a stumbling block for the righteous, it was a stumbling block for people with little faith, Asaph knew that God, would, by His grace, was preserving him and guiding him through this and would take him all the way to glory. And then third, we see the goodness of God for His strength. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 25, Who am I in heaven but you? Now this is a, a reflection of Asaph's perspective. Suddenly he's no longer looking at this earth, right? He's no longer looking at the wicked and their prosperity. But now his, his entire perspective and his eyes have gone a different direction. He's looking up to heaven and saying, who do I have in heaven but God? He's not saying there's nothing else in heaven but God, but he's saying, what else do I have in heaven that is a greater treasure than my God? Is gold a treasure? No, but God is. And who is greater, God or the gold? The gold or the one who created the gold? The one who created the gold is a greater treasure. And so in all of heaven, there is, there is no good like my God. In all of heaven, there is no treasure like my King. And so if He alone is, is the greatest treasure of heaven, then He is also alone the greatest treasure of earth. So if I look to heaven and I say, I have nothing there that is of as infinite value as my King, my God, then certainly I can look at earth and come to the same conclusion that there is nothing here that is of as much value as He is. But see, when you take God out of the perspective, then suddenly everything else starts to glitter and look like gold, doesn't it? Everything else starts to look like value. It's shiny, it's bright, it's neat. But then you put God in the perspective and all of a sudden everything else becomes dim again. Because God Himself is the greatest treasure and, and, and suddenly He is the blinding light and He becomes the most valuable thing. That's what He's saying. In heaven I got nothing, on earth I got nothing. And my heart and my strength may fail you. And in fact it had because Asaph had tried to reason through this on his own. And he got to the point where he started to conclude that God is not good to those who are His. His heart had failed Him because He had tried to approach this from his from the perspective of His own vantage point, His own eyes, His own heart, and His own flesh, His own reasoning. But like I said last week, if, if you and I try and approach a perspective like this and we do it just from the human vantage point, we can never come to the right conclusion. We never can because we don't see everything that God sees. We have to get God's vantage point before it all makes sense. But Asaph had just been looking horizontally. And so his heart and his flesh had failed him Verse 26, but God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. Verse 27 and 28 are the concluding verses of this psalm. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Back again to the justice of God. At the beginning of the psalm, Asaph had reasoned that since the wicked prospered, they must be near to God. And the righteous did not prosper, so they were the ones far off. And God was good to not those who were far off, the righteous, but the wicked. And now Asaph realizes it is not the right, since he sees God's perspective on the purpose for the blessings, he realizes it's, it's not the righteous who are far off and the wicked who are near. It is the righteous who are near and the wicked who are far off. And they, in fact, will be destroyed because they have made themselves far off. They have chased away from God, walked away from God. They have turned their back on the only thing that can keep them from the judgment and the wrath of God. And in so doing and wandering off, they have become not the objects of God's blessing but they have in fact become targets of God's wrath by their own doing, by their own sinfulness. A whole different perspective than the first half of the psalm. Now look at the last verse. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Is my gold my good? For the wicked it is. But the righteous know that being near, being near to God, that is my good. It's, it's not my gold, it's not my prosperity, it's not my power, my preeminence, it's not my position, it's not any possession that I have, it's nothing on earth, nothing in heaven, only God. God is my good. God is my good. He looked at the wicked and he said, look at all the good that they have. But then Asaph realizes, wicked don't have good. 
They don't have good things. All of these things are stumbling blocks and curses to them. But God Himself, He is my good. And so He could be content with that. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now there's quite a change there from where we started, right? When Asaph had come to the wrong conclusion, it is vain to serve God, but I dare not say anything about that. So he stopped his mouth from saying anything about that conclusion. Now after getting God's perspective, he has worked through this and we get to the end of the psalm and what does he say? I will tell of the works of the Lord. Now his mouth is unstopped. Now he will speak. Why? Because now he knows he has come to God's perspective on this. And aren't you glad that Asaph did? Aren't you glad that Asaph said something about the prosperity of the wicked? And told us about his anguish over this and what he came to, the conclusions he came to and what he learned? So what's the point of the psalm? Though the prosperity of the wicked may perplex the righteous, when we get God's perspective, we understand that that blessing, that prosperity, sorry, the prosperity of the wicked, when we get God's perspective on it, then we realize that that prosperity is short-lived and it is illusory. It's just deceptive. It's just an illusion. It's just a vain dream. And it will all vanish. And what they will get is what they have reaped, what they have sowed for themselves. They will reap it. And with this I close, and it's a quote from Matthew Henry describing the prosperity of the wicked. The commentator Matthew Henry says, What their prosperity now is, it is but an image, a vain show, a fashion of the world that passes away. It is not real but imaginary, and it is only a corrupt imagination that makes it happiness. It is not substance but a mere shadow. It is not what it seems to be, nor will it prove what we promise ourselves from it. It is as a dream, which may please us a little while we are asleep, yet even then it disturbs our repose. But now... However pleasing soever it is, it is all but a cheat, it is all false, and we wake to find it so. End quote. Do the wicked really prosper? Depends on what you mean by prosper, right? Do they get riches? Yeah. But if we say all's well that ends well, and we would have to alter that and say all's well that ends eternally well. Because the righteous, our affliction, our suffering ends in peace. And so all is good. But for the wicked, all of their prosperity ends in destruction. And so all is misery. All is well that ends eternally well. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for what you have revealed in your word about these things that our own souls wrestle through. We see these things in our own life, in the world around us, in the people who lead our own nation and have all the power and the prosperity. And yet we need your perspective to be able to evaluate any of it from a, a biblical vantage point. We thank you for what Asaph went through and for what he learned and for what he has written. And we are grateful for that you have instructed our hearts in these things in these last two weeks. We pray that you would continue to be glorified in and through your people as we, as we see the world around us through your eyes. Help us not to envy those things that you despise, but to have pity upon those who are marked out for destruction because they will not repent and trust in your Son, in whose gracious and glorious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.